So a lot of you know I've been in the ministry for a while now, and um, I wanted to, to share one of, one of the most awkward moments I've had in ministry. And I know we all love awkward moments, those times that make us feel unsettled and uh, not knowing what to do. And so this particular one happened at a funeral. And um, so what happened is the church I was at, the funeral director was a member of the church, and he calls me up one morning and says, hey, I've got this father who has lost his son, he was about 20-something-year-old, in a car wreck, and they don't have a pastor, they're in need of a pastor, and I didn't know if you'd be able to help them out. And so I said, sure, I'll do whatever I can to help out in the situation, and can you uh, tell me anything more about them? Do they want to get together? Because normally I do a funeral, and, and if I do a wedding, I like to meet with the couple, and I like to meet with the family just to get to know them a little bit, and, and I kind of get some, some history or some stories, something to you know, make it a little more personal so I'm not just a pastor for hire. Well, the funeral director said, well, uh, no, actually, the father's really wanting to speed this up, and so the funeral's going to be in a couple days. Um, all I can tell you is the son died in a horrific car accident. Um, the father um, is a little rough around the edges. Um, and so I said, well, do you know if they're believers or not? And he said, I, I, I would say probably not by the, what I know about them. So I said, well, I'll do it, and uh, let me pray about it and, and uh, figure out what God wants to say to this family. And so I began praying, and I felt God leading me to a passage of Scripture many of us are familiar with, known as John 3.16, because in my head I was thinking, you know, what better message is there to give a family that is heartbroken and going through such a difficult time than to share about the love that God does have for them, even in the difficult times, that God lost his son as well and gave up his son, and, but he did that to show his love that we might be forgiven for sins. And so that's the direction I was going, John 3, 16. We're going to talk about God's love. So I come to the funeral. Um, the, the director takes me to the father. I go to him, and I, I, I tell him how sorry I am for him. I can't imagine the loss he's going through, and let him know I've been praying for him. And if there's anything I can do, get, you know, give him my name, um, just let me know. And uh, it's at that moment that I, as I look back, <laughs> I wish the father at that moment would have let the steam off of his chest at that moment than when he decided to do it. And so I prayed with them real quick, and then they started playing, you know, you know, we've been to funerals before, they started playing, you know, some soft instrumental music, and that was my key that, okay, the funeral's getting ready to start, I need to get ready. So the funeral begins, I get up, I read the obituary, and I pray, and then I sit back down, because the family had a song they had chosen, they wanted played right before the message began. This was the song. It was from Merle Haggard. And the song's title is, I, sit, I Think I'll Sit Here and Drink. And that's not even the awkward part. I mean, it's not the song I would have chosen for that particular occasion, but, you know, to each his own. I was here to minister. And so as this song was going on, I was thinking, well, this kind of captures the atmosphere. I was in a room with a bunch of good old boys and good old girls, and you could smell things that were not perfumed but of alcoholic nature in the room. And so as the song ends... That's my cue to come up to the podium and to deliver this message on John 3.16. As I open my Bible and I look at uh, the message I have ready, the father who's in the front row, about where Lisa's standing, stands up. And this guy's like 6'3". He's a big old boy. He looks at me and says, you better not bleepity bleep speak about God's love in this place. So my, my mind starts going to a panic mode. 
Because I know the message I've prepared about John 3.16, and I, I know that I was called to do this, um, but I looked at the Father, and the only information I had is that he's got some rough edges. And when I went to go shake his hand, introduce myself, pray for him, tell him how sorry he was, I could tell that he had had a few spirits, not the Holy One, but some other spirits before this particular occasion. And from my experience in the past, I know when people are in that sort of state of mind, there are certain buttons you do not want to push because things can escalate quite quickly. So I looked at the father who was just staring me down, and I, I, I gave him a kind of a smile and just kind of nodded my head. I took a deep breath, and then I went to go sit down. And it just got completely quiet. It was the most awkward experience I've ever had. I've never experienced or seen anything like that at a funeral before. I was a, a freshly new pastor. This was one of my first funerals. Not my first, but one of my, I think it was my second funeral I'd ever done. Um, and as I sit there, there's people with, that are gathered to support the family begin talking up. Let him speak. Let him say and share what he has to say. And and so I looked at the father, and he finally nodded, and he was just gushing in tears. So I get up behind the podium, and I preached the message that was based upon John 3.16 about the love of God. And after I delivered that message, I finished it in prayer, and I went to the father. And I went straight to him. I gave him a hug. I told him how sorry I am for him. And in that moment, the father hugged me back. And I gained his respect in that moment simply because... I wasn't preaching at him. I was trying to show him love. I was trying to show him that he's not in this alone. And uh, when I did the, uh, the graveyard service, which was another day after that, um, it was like me and the father become best buds. But I share this story because it was one of the most awkward situations I'd been in. It, it, it really threw me off. Um, I didn't know what to do. Luckily, the Holy Spirit guide, guided and led me. But um, it's to go into what we're looking at this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 7, as you can see behind me, beginning in verse 36. And this passage deals with an awkward situation, but it also gives us a beautiful glimpse of the grace, the forgiveness, and the amazing love of God. And so let's begin in Luke chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 36. And the word of the Lord says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, reclining at, table, at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you because you make it well with our soul. We come before you because we need your voice and your spirit and your word to become living and active in our life. We don't need to hear the words of men and the words of society. Father, we do not have your wisdom, and so I pray, Lord, in this moment that you just use me as an instrument of righteousness, that you use me as a minister of reconciliation, Father, that we would just come so in awe of your love for us and so aware of what we should do in response to that incredible love. I thank you for allowing us to worship in your presence, to come into the throne room of grace because we are your children. And Father, if there's someone here this morning has yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior, has yet to been given the gift of eternal life, I pray that your Spirit would speak to them and bring them to a place of conviction and repentance, and that today would be the day of their salvation. Not for the glory of this church, not for the glory of anybody here, but for your glory. Father, we ask you to forgive us if we have not been worshiping in spirit and truth, but help, you, help us in this moment to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we open your scriptures. And we pray that your spirit would open them to us to give us further discerning and further wisdom and further knowledge of you and our relationship with you. So, Father, I pray that your kingdom and will be done in this time. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you look here in verse 36 through 39, I want you to catch something that we can easily overlook. Luke wants us to know exactly whose presence that Jesus Christ is in in this moment. It's a Pharisee. To make sure that we understand that and his original readers would understand that, Luke points it out four different times. He says it's the Pharisee who invited Jesus to his house and Jesus then went to the Pharisee's house. And then Jesus and all the guests reclined at the Pharisee's house. And then it was the Pharisee who saw what was taking place behind him. And it was the Pharisee to which Jesus responded. Now, so far in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees have been the greatest antagonizers of Jesus and John the Baptist. They've come to him and come to John asking questions about their identity. Why are they doing what they're doing? They come giving little snippet comments they come uh, with a lack of belief. And yet we find Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being invited to a Pharisee's house, and what does he do? He goes. We don't learn of the Pharisee's name until verse 40, when the events have transpired with this woman. Now, why a Pharisee would invite Jesus to his house, we can only speculate. It's possible because Pharisees were a lot like politicians in this day. So it's possible the Pharisees saw all this crowd following Jesus Christ in order to gain the attention of the people, he invited Jesus to his house. You know, I come with open arms before this individual. 
It's also possible that Jesus has preached or taught in the synagogue, and so he'd been viewed as a traveling rabbi, and so out of an act of respect, he invited Jesus to come to his house. Whatever the reason, I guarantee you the Pharisee was not expecting what was going to happen in his house on this day, and it would become rather awkward. In these banquets, the host would recline at his table with guests, and what they would do is they would open up the doors. And they would allow anybody in the city to come into their house and they could stand along the walls and they could listen to the conversation that was taking place. They could be like almost entertained by it. So it wasn't weird that this woman shows up uninvited as there have been other people there in attendance. What is striking is that she is the polar opposite of the Pharisee. And again, Luke makes sure to point this out in verses 37 and 39. She is known not because of her religion, not because of her relationship with God, but she is known because she is a sinful woman. Now, what her sin is, again, we can only speculate. But since she comes with this alabaster jar of ointment, that word ointment could be read as perfume. This would have been a costly piece of possession she had because it wasn't like you could take a cap off. You had to break the top off in order to get to the perfume. And once you did that, the perfume would come out and you would begin to lose its value. And this is what she brings to Jesus, this alabaster jar of ointment or perfume. And so since it was such a costly piece of possession, most people believe that this woman was a well-known prostitute in this town. And not only do the people know this woman's sinful lifestyle, Notice the Pharisee also knows the sinful woman's lifestyle in verse 39. And Jesus as well knows her sinful lifestyles. He points it out in verse 47 when he says that her sins, which are many. And here's the first thing we can learn about the amazing love of God is that the amazing love of God should make us courageous for God. This woman wasn't invited to the banquet. No doubt if she knew if she knew if she showed up, she was going to get the stink eye. She was going to get people looking at her a certain way, maybe pointing and murmuring to themselves, talking about her lifestyle, asking why in the world does she hear? Why does she think she can come into a Pharisee's house and be a part of this banquet? Why does she think she can come into the presence of a religious elite? Yet once she found out that Jesus has gone to this Pharisee's house, She went going, not caring what anyone else might think or what anyone else might do. This woman, we have to understand, viewed as a sinful woman, this woman was an outcast. She was alone. She was, in fact, a prostitute. The only company she would have is when she sold herself. And so here in verse 36 and 37, here's the image we have. We have a high class and an outcast. And they've come into the presence of Jesus. But she comes showing us the courage we must have. To be courageous for God, we cannot think about what anyone else thinks. We cannot worry about what anyone else may say when we stand for Jesus Christ and we stand for the kingdom of God. We cannot allow anyone to stop us to be courageous for the love of God that we have. We must continue to reveal it, continue to share it, and continue to live it. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Sometimes to be courageous, we have to be like this woman. 
We have to be willing to be the outcast. We have to be willing to stand alone. We have to begin to be able to look at popular opinion and popular culture and be willing to go against that popular opinion if it does not match the Word of God. This means we may have to take stands against friends and against co-workers because we can't go where they're wanting to go. We can't do what they're wanting to do. This might mean that God is calling you to a conference. Maybe he's calling you to camp. Maybe he's calling you to the mission field. But if you go, no one else that you normally hang out with is going to go. But we have to be courageous that this is for me and for God and my relationship. I want to fall more in love with him because I know how much he loves me. Because of God's amazing love shown for us through Jesus Christ, we have to be courageous to show the love of God. Now, the image of verse 38 seems a little bit hard to imagine in our current culture. I mean, how can this woman be standing behind Jesus, and yet when she becomes emotional and her tears fall, it falls to the feet of Jesus? Well, we're told in verse 36 that the guests are reclining at the table. And so here's what that means. It means they're all laying on their left side. They're either propping themselves on their elbow or with their arm laid out. I would do it, but, you know, it would be, like, too cute. Anyway, so they're, and they're, their head is towards the food, and their feet are to the back of them. And this is so they can engage in conversation. They reach out for the food with their right hand and eat because the right hand was deemed the stronger side. It was deemed the side that was most welcomed. And so they're all reclining there. And this woman, obviously, she's come with the intention to pour this ointment on Jesus. And a typical anointing would go on the head. But then she becomes overwhelmed with emotion. And the plan has to change. Again, we have to ponder, why was this woman so emotional just by being in the presence of Jesus in this moment? Well, since we've been walking through the Gospels as chronologically as possible... Back in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, Lucas begins setting up a series of events that seem to happen one after the other. And so in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, he does his own little uh, style of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as in-depth as Matthew's. Matthew takes Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And then he comes into chapter 7, of what, what we call chapter 7. We have to keep in mind this is letters. They didn't really have chapter breaks or verse breaks. And he begins talking about the miracles that Jesus did and the comments that Jesus had made about John the Baptist. And what we looked at last week when we turned to Matthew is Matthew inserted a certain time where Jesus spoke and he taught. And Jesus delivered an invitation for all to come to him who are heavy laden and heavy burdened, and he will give you rest. And so what is probably happened in this time, and we don't know the time frame, at some point, maybe the entire time, This sinful woman most likely didn't sit in the crowd, but she was probably on the outside. And she was hearing these words of Jesus, how mercy can be found, how we should not be judgmental, how we should love our enemies, how God has come to save those who are heavy burdened, to give them rest, refreshment, revival, how forgiveness can be found in God. And hearing these words, because of the language of this passage, she comes to a place of repentance. And so she repents of her former life, her sinful life. And now she comes to Jesus and she's heard his words and she's within touching distance of him and hearing the words of God's love for her despite her past life, she becomes so emotional she begins to weep upon the feet of Jesus. 
And this becomes the very first time to which the Pharisee is now given a name there in verse 40. His name is Simon. This isn't Simon Peter. But Jesus directs his attention to Simon. And in the midst of this conversation with him, he tells Simon that this woman, her sins have been forgiven. That was Simon's benefit. But also for the woman's. But then he confirms it in verse 48 to the woman, your sins are forgiven. This woman knew about her lifestyle. She knew her lifestyle was not accepted in her society. She knew it wasn't accepted by the Jewish people. She knew because of her lifestyle she could never go in the synagogue or to the temple in Jerusalem. She was not welcome. And yet Jesus gives this amazing gift of God's love that your sins are forgiven. But what it tells us because of her response is the amazing love of God should cause response. What is interesting is this Pharisee also must have heard Jesus teach at some point in time. Because he refers to Jesus as a teacher there in verse 40. But this woman responded more appropriately because she understood God's love and God's forgiveness. She understood the great gift that she had been given, which is the comment Jesus makes that she has been forgiven much. As her tears begin to fall, she begins to wipe it with her hair. Again, in our side, well, that's still kind of weird, but it doesn't seem that odd. But what this means is as this woman came in, she would have had to let her hair down, which was a Jewish taboo. Women did not let their hair down, particularly in public. But she's so overwhelmed with emotion, she sees her tears, she lets her hairs down, and she begins showing her love for Jesus Christ. Then she kisses his feet. She kisses the feet of Jesus Christ. We have to remember the feet were deemed one of the dirtiest parts of the human body at this time. They didn't have Nikes or Reeboks. They wore sandals or they went barefoot. They walked on roads where animals walked. There's a good chance they may have thought they stepped in wet dirt, but it was not wet dirt. And this woman comes and kisses the feet of Jesus, the dirtiest part of the body. But in this action, she's showing this deep sense of reverence for who he is. And finally, she gets to what she originally came to do, to anoint him. But she pours it on his feet. Again, normal anointings would fall on the head. But it's possible she didn't want to try to reach over and make it awkward. Or maybe she had such humility that she felt she was unworthy to anoint the head of Jesus Christ. See what she's doing? She's responding to the amazing love of God. It may have been inappropriate for her to be at this banquet, but the actual inappropriate response comes from the Pharisee, who again is given a name in verse 40. Notice, though, in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, what's that mean? Did he say it out loud? No, it's just in his head. He said it to himself. He maybe muttered it under his breath but so no one else could hear it. If this man, speaking of Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The implication by his thought in his heart is if Jesus were a prophet like the people thought he was, like the people were proclaiming him to be, they were putting him up on this pedestal, then he would have known 
who this woman was, what sort of lifestyle she lived, he would have known and he would not even allowed her to touch him because she is unclean. And Jewish tradition says that if something unclean touches you, it makes you unclean. You get transferred over to an uncleanly person. And so Jesus, to Simon now, is revealing that he in fact is a prophet because he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He can discern the thoughts of the heart. And so he politely tells Simon, hey, Simon, I have something to say to you. He's inviting Simon into this conversation, into Simon's own heart and his own thoughts, and Simon gives him permission. But using Simon's name there in verse 40 is allowing everyone in the household to know that this is directly straight to Simon. But everyone in attendance can also learn about what Jesus is going to say. When Simon calls Jesus a teacher at the end of verse 40, that was a sign of respect the issue is he hasn't shown Jesus in respect as the host. He, and now he has disrespected Jesus in his heart, and this leads Jesus to get Simon's attention. To tell him a short parable there in verse 41 and 42. About two individuals who owned a debt to a moneylender. That word moneylender could be read as creditor. It could be read as a banker. He says that one had 500 denarii worth of debt. Now one denarii was a day's wage. So this person, 500 dairy, had a year and a half worth of debt towards this one person. Then Jesus says there's another one who had 50. So he had a tenth of the debt to the same lender, to the same creditor. And yet the creditor looked at the 500 and the 50, and it says he canceled. And that word canceled in the ESV literally means he forgave both debts. He wiped them clean. After delivering the parable, Jesus then turns his attention back to Simon, and he asks him a question. Out of your interpretation of this parable, Simon, who do you think loved the creditor more, the one who had 500 or the one who had 50? Notice in verse 43, Simon's response begins by saying it with, I suppose. Other translations can be read as, I take it. Either way, he's showing he's hesitant to answer the question, even though he knows the right answer. He, he almost maybe feels he's getting into a trap, so he begrudgingly answers the question, and Jesus doesn't condemn him. Instead, Jesus says, Simon, you judged correctly. Your assessment is spot on. And then this brings to the full circle of event that is happening at this banquet table. As Jesus first asked for Simon's attention in order to give him a lesson he then directs Simon's attention to the woman. You find it interesting that once Jesus has taken control of this situation, Simon is no longer referred to as a Pharisee. See, Pharisees were known in this day and age to be individuals set apart for God. They were to teach the people of God how to live for God in the current culture they live in. But obviously, the Pharisee Simon wasn't doing that. And so now he's just Simon. You don't have that title. You're just, you're just Simon. Let me talk to you as Simon. In verse 44 and 46, what we have is this pattern of, Simon, you didn't do this, but she did. Simon, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't dry them, but she washed my feet with her tears, and she dried them with her hair. 
Simon, you didn't give me a kiss when I came into your house, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I arrived. Simon, you didn't anoint my hair with oil, but she came and anointed me with expensive ointment or perfume. We look at that and go, what in the world is going on? Well, these were traditional customs within the Jewish world. A Jewish host would provide these for his guests, particularly if he believed his guests to be someone that was honoring their home. The washing of the feet was not only done by servants within the household. This again because, you know, the footwear, the sandals, or the lack of sandals, and the things you would step in. And so your feet would be unclean. And so when they come in the house, they would immediately wash the feet so it would be kosher and nothing else would become unclean or contaminated, particularly the food, because you're going to put the food in your body and you don't want to make yourself unclean. So when a guest would arrive, they would take off their sandals or they would find a place where they could sit down. And usually the lowest servant of the house would come to the guest and they would wash their feet with water and dry them off with a towel. It was a sign of welcoming the guest into the home, of accepting that guest as their own and you were going to be the host to take care of them. The kiss was a sign of respect and honor and adoration. Typically, after a guest's feet were washed, they would stand up and the host would either grab the hand and kiss the hand, kiss the cheek, or kiss the forehead to show that they have respect for that person. They appreciate that, that person. They have adoration for that person. The anointing of the oil would be similar to if you would arrive at someone's house and say, hey, can I go to the restroom and freshen up real quick? Maybe it's a windy day, and so you got to get some water and comb your hair. I don't have that problem, but you get some water and you comb your hair over. That's what the anointing of oil, this is like olive oil. This is not expensive oil. So you'd put it, pour it on their head so they could kind of freshen up and look presentable for the meal. But Simon doesn't do any of these things as a host to Jesus Christ. Yet when this uninvited woman, this sinful woman shows up, she does it. And the wording of verse 44 and 45 is that she continues to do it. And this leads Jesus into wrapping up the whole meaning of his parable, what he's trying to teach Simon and the actions of this woman is that forgiveness has been found through love. If you haven't been listening yet, I encourage you to tune in because this would probably be the best thing I have to say. The amazing love of God forgives all. The amazing love of God forgives all. The reading of verse 47, Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. It seems the point that this woman's love was this woman's love is what granted her forgiveness, but that isn't what Jesus is saying. He's saying is her courage to come to this place, her response to the love of God and showing love and affection and submission and humility, that is the evidence that she has been forgiven and she has found salvation. Jesus will say in verse 50 that your faith has saved you. It was by her faith that which she was forgiven for all of her sins, and by her faith that which saved her. And she had many sins. Even Jesus points that out. <laughs> her sins are many, but Jesus forgave them all. The amazing love of God forgives all. And here's what we need to understand. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we accept him for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life, hear this, God has forgiven all your sins. All of them. 
Not just the sins before you came to salvation. Not just the sins you did on the day of your salvation. God forgave you even for the sins you were going to do after your salvation. All of them have been wiped out and God no longer sees you in your sin, but an individual is forgiven, his child, and is covered in the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect holiness. That is an amazing, loving God. Because we do not deserve that just as much as this woman did not deserve it. God's love covers us for everything. He saved us and he forgave us. And he knew, get this, God knew, he knows all things. God knew we would still wrestle with sin. God knew that we would still stumble into temptation and we would sin. And yet God, in his amazing love, forgave us. Can I need an amen? Man, he knew everything we would do. Every mistake we would make, everything we would do against his word and, yet, and against his will, and yet his amazing love still forgave us. Hear this amazing problem from the book of Psalms, chapter 103. He, speaking of God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that means immeasurable, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So this is why we should be courageous. This is why we should respond appropriately to God's amazing love. Now we aren't told here in Scripture how Simon responded to Jesus' granting of forgiveness, but we do know that the other guests were not too pleased with what Jesus said. Their question there in verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins, isn't a question of astonishment. This is a question of judgment. This is a question of looking at Jesus, not even as a prophet now, but now as a blasphemer. Because only God has the authority and the power to forgive sins. Yet here is this man, Jesus, sitting at a table with us, and he's declaring the forgiveness of sins on someone we know to be a sinner as if he has the full power and authority of God upon him. But that's what Jesus is trying to convey who he is. He is God in the flesh that has come to take the sins of the world. But they're not happy with it. And by them looking and saying, who is this? That could forgive sins. He's saying he's a blasphemer, a sinner himself, and therefore not perfect. And what I love about this encounter is though Jesus dealt with Simon's doubts and his wrestling about him being a prophet, Jesus revealed that he was by what he taught Simon. But Jesus doesn't deal with these guests. He doesn't deal with the guests doubting his ability to forgive. Instead, verse 48 he turns his attention back to the woman. I wonder if he does that because it does not say the guests, well, they said amongst themselves, but if they're saying amongst themselves, it's probably numerous. I imagine they're looking at this woman, and I wonder if this woman, like some of us sometimes, can have our doubts about our own salvation and have that wrestling. And so Jesus turns his attention directly to the woman, and we should just picture it here in the passage, looking her directly in the eye. And confirming what he's just told Simon, your sins are forgiven. 
And then he states how it happened in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. See, it wasn't just her actions. Her actions were fueled by her faith, and it was her faith which granted her salvation and forgiveness from her sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith, and Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him, speaking of God. The faith isn't just this inward feeling. Faith is to manifest itself in our life as response to the amazing love of God. That's why James teaches us, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This woman's faith was manifested into action. It led to a courageous heart and a response to Jesus. And in her faith, she did not find disappointment with God. Jesus tells her to go in peace. I don't know what your version of Scripture that you read out of, but the proper Greek isn't go in peace. The proper Greek is go into peace. See, people would say go in peace in this culture when someone was dead. Kind of like what we say today, rest in peace. But the proper Greek is go into peace, meaning go on living without doubt. Go on living with full insurance and confidence that God loves you. That word peace, Jesus would have said in the Hebrew, which is shalom. It means to have prosperity of body and soul. And how could she have that? Because she was no longer under God's wrath for her sins. That prosperity doesn't speak about earthly or material wealth. It speaks about prosperity of body and soul. And here's the promise we have. No matter what we have done in our life, no matter what we will do in our life, God's forgiveness is greater. God's love is greater. His mercy is greater. His grace is greater. And I have great news for you. No matter what you've done or will ever do, you will never surprise God. You will never take him, whoa, didn't see that coming. And his grace and his love wants to grant us peace. Prosperity, a soul, and mind. But it can only happen if we accept it. Last week we saw how Jesus invited us, if we came to him, we would find rest. Come all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. We talked about last week, if you want to hear that word rest, means refreshment. It means revival. And now Jesus reveals that if we come to him, we can have peace. My question this morning is, do you have the peace that only Christ can give you? Are you in this room in this moment knowing today, if today was the last day you lived on this planet, and when you opened your eyes again and you saw Jesus Christ, do you have the blessed assurance, the peace, that when he looked back at you, he would say, well done. Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. If you're here this morning and you can't answer that with a assertive yes. If you don't have a peace in your heart, your mind, your soul in this moment, I have great news for you. You maybe think you're here by chance, but God has called you here to not only share the good news, but for you to accept the good news that this woman did. God has created you for a relationship with him. This is the utmost purpose for your life, to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But you can't do it on your own. 
See, we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that wage of sin is death. That means eternal separation from the God of the living. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So even though our sins separated us from God, God already knew that. So he sent Jesus Christ to pay the price for that sin. He paid the cost, the wage. And he paid it in full. That's why he said, it is finished. And the Bible tells us that when we believe that God loves us that much, even though we probably know we don't deserve it, at least we should be amazed that God would love us that much. But we believe he did, and Jesus Christ did what the Bible says he did. He died for our sins, and he rose again, that we could be forgiven and given eternal life. And we believe that in the heart. The Bible says we must confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and our need for forgiveness only found through Jesus Christ. And here's the incredible promise. When we do that simple thing, not because we deserve it, or we've earned it, or worked for it, God forgives us completely and gives us eternal life, because he loves you. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be standing down here. I'm just asking you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. But maybe you're here and you're like me, and sometimes we get thrown off by the awkward situations in life, the things that kind of throw us off guard. And we've forgotten about how much God's amazing love covers us and loves us through all those things. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And if you're found in that love, Jesus promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. We're going to come this time of invitation. I'm going to ask the worship team or worship members to come up and lead us. I want to pray over us, and I'm going to invite you to come if you need to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And We do not deserve it, but, Lord, you are a good and great and mighty God. And you are so faithful to your word. You'll never go against your word and your promises. And Father, if there's someone here this morning, you search hearts and minds and souls. There's someone here this morning who does not know you and is not known by you as your child. Father, I pray in this time your spirit would give them that understanding and they would come down the aisle and let this be the day of their salvation. But Lord, you know at times we as your people can sometimes become numb to how much you do love us and what your love should call us to do in this life. Help us to be faithful to it. Help us to love one another as you have loved us because then the world would know we belong to you. And help us to love the people that you place in our life, our neighbors. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible gift of mercy you've given us this morning. We ask you to continue to be glorified that we not just be hearers of your word but doers. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.